Hi, and welcome back to The Curious Case of Freedom. Growing up in Israel, even though I come from a relatively secular family, it was almost unavoidable to be exposed to stories from the Bible. From the Old Testament, of course. Now, whether you view the Bible as the inspired word of God, or as a collection of stories put together by men, I believe that it does contain some valuable lessons. One story I would like to share with you today. That is the story of the prophet Samuel. Samuel was a judge. He was revered by the people of Israel for his wisdom. He traveled between the tribes from village to village, mediating and settling disputes. At the time, the people of Israel had no government as we might now think of it. And so Samuel did not receive payment for his services through taxation, for there was no taxation. He was an honored guest, and he subsided on the generosity and hospitality of those who benefited by his presence among them. He was an honest man, who did not represent any authority, but simply relied on reason, common sense, and empathy, while attempting to help the people solve their disputes. The reason why people listened to him and accepted his judgment was simply because his reputation preceded him as an honest man. The years went by, and Samuel became too old to be traveling from one village to the next all through the year. He settled in the village of Rama, and from there proceeded to be a focal point and a positive influence on the people of Israel. However, not everyone could come and see him for mediation and for advice, and so he offered his two sons, Joel and Abiah, as judges in his stead. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said unto him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel then grew silent, and a dark cloud appeared over his face. He needed some time to consider what was asked of him, and so he meditated for three days and three nights. And when he returned from his meditation, the elders were awaiting for his words, and so he spoke. This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will tax the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will tax a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials. He will tax a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. 
you will become servants of the state. And when that day comes, when you are so oppressed and the rule of the king is heavy upon you, you will cry out to have the burden lifted. But it cannot then be lifted. For you have abandoned freedom in favor of political controls. The people of Israel pressed Samuel further, till he could resist no longer. And so he anointed them a king, King Saul, who proceeded to regulate, rule, tax, and control. He launched a number of military campaigns, and the condition of freedom that the Israelites once enjoyed was lost. I believe that Samuel's contribution was not in anointing King Saul, nor was it in his warnings that were of no use to the Israelites, who just wanted to fit in and be more like their neighbors, but in being the purveyor of justice that he was, and thus serving as the first written example of how law and order thrive in a condition of freedom, and how they are perverted under centralized power and control. Through our state schooling, we repeatedly learn to equate the state with law and order, and statelessness with chaos and mayhem. When we learn about human history, it often seems as if it were all about war and strife, about power struggles and violence. But just like the newspapers seldom report about peaceful interactions, so do most of our history books fail to mention all those cases where civilization progressed in freedom and peace and prosperity prevailed. Today, I would like to have a closer look at some such historical examples and some more current ones as well. The first example that comes to mind is Celtic Ireland. Between the 7th and the 17th century, so over a period of roughly 1,000 years, while most of Europe was in flames, engaging in one power struggle after another, Ireland was just sitting there, forgotten. With barely an embryonic conception of anything that we would call a state, the people of Ireland had spontaneously and gradually put in place a well-developed legal tradition in which lawmaking was the special function of a professional group of jurist consults and arbitrators known as the Brehans. Law and order and the adjustment of conflicting interests were achieved through the giving of sureties rather than state-monopolized coercion. The Brehans were essentially freelance judges who offered their services much like Samuel did in the Old Testament and it was their reputation in a marketplace of fair adjudication that kept them from taking bribes and ensured honest dealings. The Irish law as developed by the Brehans was able to evolve an extremely sophisticated and flexible legal response to changing social and cultural conditions while preserving principles of equity and the protection of property rights. The influence of the Brehans rested upon the free consent of the community in choosing them as arbitrators in disputes, and this made equity and justice more likely than in royal courts, where the interests of the state and its rulers 
were paramount. It is interesting to note that the legal capacity of women in Celtic Ireland showed exceptional development and gave women property rights as early as the 8th century. So, centuries ahead of those enjoyed by English women, and before the concept of feminism was known to anyone in the Western world. It is also interesting to observe that it took the English armies over 400 years until they finally managed to invade Ireland in the 17th century. While this fact is not directly related to the Brehan Law, I believe that it is a result of the lack of centralized power in Ireland. The English armies would have had to conquer one village at a time, losing any holds that they gained whenever they proceeded to the next one. Whereas in every other conquered land, all they had to do was capture the capital, the state apparatus, the institution that held central power, and their mission was mostly accomplished. The Brehans survived among the native Irish until the very end of a free Irish society in the early 17th century. They were particularly marked for persecution by the English authorities, along with the poets and the historians. It was against the interest of the incumbent powers to allow the narrative to survive that without a centralized power structure, peace, prosperity and order could prevail. And so, much like in Orwell's 1984, history was rewritten, or rather, erased, and not to mention, lives were lost. There are a few more historical examples that deserve mention. Though I will not go into such detail about each and every one of them, I will provide links in the show notes where you can read more about these examples. A few of them are the law merchant that emerged in medieval Europe, as well as private creation and enforcement of law in Iceland in the Middle Ages. A more widely known example is common law, which in England, Australia and the United States existed parallel to legislative law, and is the embodiment of law emerging as a consequence of human action, rather than as a product of human design. One more historical example that comes to mind is what we often refer to as the Wild Wild West. The American frontier from the 18th century all through to the early 20th century is often perceived as a place of great chaos, with little regard to life or property. However, many historical studies indicate that this was hardly the case. Life and property rights were protected and civil order prevailed. Private agencies provided the necessary basis for an orderly society in which conflicts were mostly resolved peaceably. Since violence, apart from being considered to be immoral by most people, is also an extremely unreliable means of solving conflicts, there is no guarantee that justice will prevail once violence is accepted. Conflicts that could not be solved personally were taken to mediation agencies, which like the Brehans had an incentive in a marketplace of fair adjudication to maintain their reputation and promote fair, win-win solutions. And yet, for some reason, that is not the story that most of us know. 
Now, maybe this is just because peaceful adjudication makes less of a sensation in the box office than the gunfight at the OK Corral. But I believe that it is more than that. I believe that once groups of individuals with special political interests get to dictate not only what is right and what is wrong, but also what should be taught and what not, history tends to be rewritten. Now, some might argue that it's all well and good to give these historical examples, but they are no longer relevant today. And indeed, I'm not suggesting that we are to turn back the time and attempt to live like they did in Ireland in the 7th century. So let us bring our attention back to what is, to what exists today. Whether we like it or not, nowadays, the state reserves for itself the final say of law creation and law enforcement. Once the courts are linked with the state, despite the so-called separation of powers, it is impossible to completely avoid the politicization of the justice system. Legislative law is one example of law politicized. But in some cases, it is as blatant as judges who are anointed by politicians for political agendas rather than for their keen eye for justice. But regardless, in many places, state courts have become so clogged, bureaucratic, inefficient, and wasteful that more and more people try to avoid them and turn where they can to private adjudicators that are often cheaper, more efficient, and far more reliable. Another example of current-day alternative to state law can interestingly be found in blockchain technology that through its radical decentralization creates an alternative to the need for a so-called middleman or disinterested third party in order to ensure honest dealings. There are examples all around us of how law and order are achieved and maintained without the help of the state and despite political attempts to thwart justice in favor of the politically connected. I will provide some articles in the show notes that offer a closer look at some such examples. But for now, I would like to focus on one more. Whether you consider the state to be a legitimate force in our society or not, despite many advocates, we still, luckily I believe, do not currently have a world government. And so, dealings between nations can be likened to the dealings between sovereign free individuals in a state of anarchy. Any dealings between states and between citizens of these sovereign states that are peaceful is an attest to our ability to conduct ourselves morally and to engage in win-win interactions in a marketplace. While conflicts between states arise and where war festers, I believe that that is a feature of the institution of the state that teaches us to equate the state apparatus with society itself, that teaches self-sacrifice as a virtue, that teaches obedience. And where the wagers of war are not the people who suffer the consequences, but the same politicians who, ironically, in times of peace, purport to be the ones overseeing the health 
and the just dealings of their citizens. What law production and enforcement could look like in a stateless society today is beyond the scope of this episode. But between the 19th century Belgian political economist Gustave de Molinari to the 19th century American economists and political theorists Murray N. Rothbard, there are plenty of articles, studies, and books that have been dedicated to this topic alone. These profound pieces of work cannot be found in the curriculum of any state university. They can, however, be found in the show notes of The Curious Case of Freedom. Thank you. When you cry 